Today's scripture reading will be from Acts 17, starting verse 22. Acts 17, verse 22. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, it's on page 926. As a church, we believe that Scripture is the central way that God reveals himself to us, his people. And we as his people can then respond in faith and obedience. So if you could please join me in standing in the reading of God's word. said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being, the, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all, to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for... In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our, your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Gracious Father, we thank you for the word as it was read, and now we are praying for your spirit to accompany the word as it is preached, and we pray that by your grace, by your kindness to us, you would give us understanding that our hearts might be uh, moved and changed by your truth. We pray all this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the last few weeks, we have been in a mini-series that we are calling The Goodness of Givenness, where we've been trying to draw greater awareness to a dominant idea regarding selfhood, that is, to how people view themselves. Some would describe it as expressive individualism. Others would call it a belief in the sovereign self, it's essentially the idea that we are our own sovereigns. We're our own masters with the authority to define and design our own self-identities. And if on this journey towards self-expression, if we have to reject external authorities in order to be true to ourselves, well, then so be it. 
That's an authentic expression of courage today in the eyes of our culture. Now, this approach to selfhood has so permeated our culture to the point that many would just assume this is the way it is. This is how all people think, how all people live. This is the way it's always been. It's like fish in water. Fish don't notice water. Fish don't even think about water to them. Water is just normal. It is the way it is because water is everywhere. Well, what we're trying to do in this series is essentially to point out the water. What have we been drinking? What have we been swimming in without even noticing? And that's why we've crafted a series aimed at actually paying attention and analyzing these dominant cultural trends and ways of thinking, particularly about the self. Because even though you may have grown accustomed to the water, what we want to do in the church is to remind Christians that we, as Christians, have been born again by the Spirit. We are new creations in Christ. We're actually like birds created and redeemed to soar in the air, but we seem to be content just swimming in the water. So what we've been doing is trying to push back with the truth of Scripture, push back against the modern idea of the sovereign self. Now, so far we've talked about how this um, uh, sovereign self and this whole way of, of looking at it now from a new perspective from Scripture, how that would apply to issues like your gender identity, or your mortality. And today, what we're going to do, we're going to talk about our ethnicity, our ethnic heritage. Because just as with your gender and your aging body, your ethnic heritage is also a given from the Lord. You didn't choose where you were born. You didn't choose when you were born or to whom you were born. You did not choose your ethnicity. You had no say in that. And so that means you have no authority or ability to change those given realities. You know, I think what happens when we don't recognize this, when we don't recognize and respect the givenness of our ethnic heritage, is that we have a tendency to respond in one of two ways, either with shame or with superiority. We might respond to our ethnicity with shame, rejecting our ethnic identity, ashamed of our heritage, ashamed of the way that we've been made. Or you might go to the opposite end of the spectrum and you would respond with superiority, revering your ethnic identity to the point of idolatry, assuming that our heritage is somehow greater than all others, not recognizing all of the commonalities that we actually share with other peoples made by the same God who has given us the same nature that reflects the same image. So I believe that if we talk about the goodness of our givenness as it pertains to our ethnicity, this will be a necessary corrective to either response, whether shame or superiority. Now, as I explained earlier, as we started this series, we're not going to be walking through one biblical passage like we normally do. So we just read a longer portion of Acts 17, but I'm only going to focus this morning on two verses, verses 26 
the 27. And in so doing, what I want to do is to draw out three biblical observations as it pertains to our ethnic heritage. So if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline there. And I listed out those three observations. First, God made all the different ethnicities. Second, God made all the ethnicities from the same source. And third, God made us all different, but put within us the same desire for the same pursuit. So let's begin with an acknowledgement that God made all the different ethnicities that are present on the earth. And that's a particular point that the Apostle Paul emphasizes in his famous sermon in Athens. Now, before we look at this sermon, before we look specifically at verses 26 to 27, let me just briefly lay out the background context for how he ended up here preaching in Athens. He's on one of his missionary journeys. He and his missionary team had just most recently been in Thessalonica and Berea, and there they experienced severe opposition and persecution. And so Paul was sent on ahead to Athens uh, in hopes of just de-escalating a lot of the tensions while the rest of his team were wrapping up ministry in the city of Berea. And so he's by himself in Athens waiting for his team to join him, and he just he can't help it. I mean, the, the Apostle Paul has this sense of calling, and so he just goes out, and he just continues his gospel ministry throughout the city. Now, we're told in verse 17 that he first goes to a local synagogue, and there he teaches about Jesus and the gospel. But he doesn't just limit his uh, ministry to houses of worship. The text goes on to say that he also went about reasoning with people with, quote, those in the marketplace every day, uh, he, he was in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Just whoever he came across, he would try to talk to them about Jesus. Now, when you read the word marketplace, I don't think of a farmer's market, you know, or, or a night market. I mean, that's where our mind typically goes. This is the Greek agora. And it wasn't just a marketplace of goods. The Agora was really a marketplace of culture and ideas. So the Agora was the city's central public square where you would find temples and law courts, libraries, shops, theaters, galleries, and you would find their city officials, judges, thinkers, philosophers, and of course you would, have, you would find merchants and vendors all there in the marketplace. Now, we're told in verse 18 that some of the teachers of the dominant philosophies of the day, the Epicureans, the Stoics, they were there with Paul in the Agora, and they were very curious about what he was teaching because they, they just assumed he's this new guy in town, and he must be a preacher of foreign deities because they've never heard of Jesus before. They never heard of this concept of, of, of Jesus and the resurrection. And so in verse 19, we're told that they bring him to the Areopagus. That's the hill of Ares, otherwise known as Mars Hill. And there, he probably stood in the Areopagus before a council of the city's intelligentsia. You know, all the big thinkers um, who had authority for what was being taught in the public square. So it was kind of like a philosophy review board where, Paul, where they were trying to determine if, if Paul should be censored or if he should be given a free pass, allowed to teach his teachings. So starting in verse 22, Paul, while standing in the midst of the Areopagus, 
preaches the gospel in a contextually strategic way to Gentiles who have no familiarity with the Old Testament or with the God of the Old Testament. And he begins by pointing out their admitted ignorance. Because earlier, he, as he was walking around the city, he stumbled across an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So for being the intellectual capital of the ancient world, it's ironic that when it comes to the most important truth in all the world, the people of Athens were ignorant. They had an altar set up to an unknown God. Now, let's be clear. Paul is not suggesting that they actually do worship the one true God just without knowing his name. No, he's actually emphasizing that they don't know God. He's emphasizing their ignorance. And now what they they can't name and what they don't rightly know, Paul is going to explain to them. Now, he starts off in his sermon by explaining that God is the God of creation. In contrast to Stoic philosophers who had a very pantheistic view of God, the idea that God is just in everything and everywhere, kind of like the force. Paul here stresses that God is not a part of creation. You don't just find him in creation. No, he is the creator. He's the one who made everything in creation. Verse 24, he's the God who made the world and everything in it. And next he goes on to insist that God is not confined to a temple. And in cities like Athens, there were plenty of temples where these gods would be attended to by the temple priests. No, Paul says, God, quote, does not live in temples made by man, verse 25, served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything in other words, God is all-sufficient in himself. He is, he is the creator, and he is the sustainer. He doesn't need anything from us. And then, he, and then Paul arrives at verse 26, and this, this is where, where our subject now pertains. So Paul says that God is the maker of all things, in particular, he is the maker of all the different ethnicities on the earth. Let me read verse 26 again. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now, keep your eye on verse 26. And when Paul there says that God made every nation of mankind, he's saying every ethnos, that's the Greek word there, every ethnos of mankind. The Greek word ethnos is often translated as nation, as we see here, but nation in this context must not be confused with nation states that have formal governments and formal borders. No, we're talking here about distinct ethnic people groups. Ethnic people groups. Ethnos is where we actually get the word ethnic or ethnicity. Ethnos is defined not by politics and borders, but by distinct language and culture. And so it's very possible, it's quite common actually, to find many different ethnos within the same country. So again, it's not a political definition. So the point that Paul is making in verse 26 is that God made us 
ethnically different. As Christians, we don't explain all the various ethnicities by pointing to evolution. We don't point to random mutations and changes to the genetic code over some unspecified long period of time. That's not where ethnicities come from. That, of course, would be a secular explanation if there was no God. If there was no creator, then yes, that'd be a plausible explanation. But if God exists and he is the God of creation, as Paul stresses in verse 24, then the existence of all the different ethnicities on earth are not by random chance, but by design. God intended it this way. Now, I know recently we, we studied, um, as we were going through Genesis, we studied Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. And I know we saw there how all the different languages and subsequently all the different ethno-linguistic groups on the earth were a result of human pride and rebellion. Do you remember that when we looked at the Tower of Babel? There in Genesis 11, it began with all the peoples on the earth speaking one language and refusing to go and fill the earth. And so they built a tower to make a name for themselves. And we remember that the Lord had to come down in judgment and he confused their language and he dispersed them over the face of the earth. He he got them to finally fill the earth. So because of the Tower of Babel story, one might assume that God disapproves of and did not intend for the diversity in languages and thus, of course, the diversity in ethno-linguistic groups and all the different ethnicities in the world. But that would have to be an implication that you're reading into the text. Because we're not told that apart from Babel, God would not have diversified the languages and ethnicities on the earth. We're not told as if his original plans were just to preserve us as one ethnic group with just one language. No, actually, the story of Scripture seems to suggest that that was never God's plan, to keep us just as one people with one language. Because when you actually do arrive in the New Testament at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, which everyone recognizes as a reversal of the events of Babel, we don't see in Pentecost God forming a new people called the church, going back to now having this new people speak just one language and just represent one ethnicity. No, in fact, it's quite the opposite. We see a diversity of peoples from various different places, all still speaking their various different languages, and yet miraculously, there's unity. They can understand each other, and they can experience a deep-seated unity because of the shared Holy Spirit. That's what Pentecost is about. And then also, if you keep reading in the scriptures, you get to the very last book. You get to when the, the end of the age, as we're told, when Christ finally returns in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that famous vision of, quote, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every ethnos, from all tribes and peoples and languages, all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So if one ethnic group speaking only one language was the original plan all along before human sin came and ruined everything, 
then if that was the case, then you would expect a return to that very state when all of creation is redeemed at the end of the age. But of course, that's not what we see. And so the fact that the diversity of ethnicities and language remains for all eternity, well, that would suggest that that was part of God's plan all along. And Babel just so happened to be the ordained means for how God planned to initiate all of that diversity. I think that's what we can conclude by taking the whole of Scripture. So, friends, what's the takeaway? You know, we just did a you know, survey of, of, of Scripture and looking at this theologically, but what's the personal takeaway? What's well, that your ethnic identity is a given from your Creator? Your ethnicity is a part of His good creation. It may not be the most primary aspect of your identity. I mean, if you are a Christian, that's that's you being in Christ. That's your primary identity. And even, even for Christians and non-Christians, the, the, the most primary thing is the fact that we're all made in God's image. And then, of course, out of those made in God's image, there are different ethnicities. So even though it's not primary, ethnicity is still a key part of your identity. And so that means you have no reason to deny it. You have no reason to downplay it. You have no reason to be ashamed of your ethnicity. I think that's something that many of you really need to hear, especially if you grew up as an ethnic minority, particularly if you were vastly outnumbered by the majority, whether in your hometown, in your neighborhood, your school, your workplace, or your church. One of the common occurrences of those who grew up very cognizant of the fact that they were an ethnic minority is that they grow up with an experience of ethnic shame. And there was a time in my life, growing up here in Houston, where as a child, I wished I was not Chinese. I wanted to be like, honestly, the rest of my classmates who were not Chinese. I went to a private school for my elementary years, and as a young Chinese-American, I was, I was in the clear minority. And so was my girl cousin, who was in the same grade. Our family sent us to the same school. Well, at this school, there was an annual school dance or school performance. It was more of a performance where each class had to learn a dance and participate in this group dance. And in that dance, every year, boys and girls from the same grade were always paired together. And every year, I was always paired with my cousin. And don't think it's because we, made, we were just these great dance partners. I don't think that was the reason. Remember, we were one of the very few ethnic minorities there. And so I remember wishing that I wasn't Chinese so that I could dance with someone else besides my cousin every year. In subtle ways like that, I was regularly reminded that I am different than most of my classmates. And as a child, those experiences can result in a sense of shame over your given ethnicity. I, I didn't see the goodness at the time. I only saw the difference in my face compared to what was presented to me as normal. 
Friends, you may have had similar experiences, or you may have had ones that were far worse, that were overtly racist and discriminatory. We, and I mean all of us here, as people of various ethnicities, we grieve with you if that was your experience. I can understand if you have a hard time seeing the goodness of your givenness. I know why you wish that you could change your skin color or your hair or your eyes or your nose. You wish you could look different. I understand. But hear this. God made from one man every ethnicity of mankind. And he determined allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling place. That means that the Lord predetermined when you would be born, into which family you would be born, and which country you would be born in. That means your ethnic makeup, your cultural and generational experience, your family heritage are all things that were not accidents. They were not results of chance. No, that is the way that God purposely designed you. And he does all things well. So you can be proud of these given aspects of your identity. You should be proud of your ethnicity. But just watch out for pride. There is a difference. There's a difference between being proud of the ethnic heritage that you have been given by God and being filled with pride in your ethnic identity that would then lead you to a sense of superiority. And this is where our second observation comes from in Acts 17, and it provides the necessary corrective, I believe. That is, the second observation is that God made all ethnicities from the same source. He made us all from the same source. Look back at verse 26. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So notice how Paul says that every ethnos of mankind comes from one man. God made every ethnic group out of the same man, out of the same human ancestor, out of the same source. That, my friends, is an intentional emphasis on Paul's part because he was challenging a popular Athenian attitude. You see, out of all the ancient Greek city-states, Athens was known for boasting in being the only truly indigenous Greeks in contrast to the Spartans and the, the Corinthians whose ancestors immigrated to that region in the distant past. Oh, those Athens, those Athenians, they claimed to have sprung up from the native soil. They claimed to have always been there. And so they carry this air of superiority over other groups, even other Greeks. They were guilty of ethnic pride. In fact, ethnic pride was a characteristic of all ancient Greeks in general, because in their eyes, there are only two types of people, people in this world. You're a Greek or you're a barbarian. That's it. Greeks and barbarians, that's how they classified the world. So that's why Paul didn't mince words while preaching to the Athenians. He directly challenges their sense of ethnic superiority by emphasizing the unity of all mankind. In other words, Athenians, Spartans, Corinthians, barbarians, everybody is all cut from the same cloth. Every 
ethnos of mankind comes from one man. And of course, that one man he's talking about is Adam. In our Genesis series, we saw how God created all of mankind by starting with one man and one woman, commanding the pair to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And from this one couple comes all the peoples of the earth, including all the various ethnic groups. Now, back in that series, when we had preached on race and the Imago Dei, the image of God, we explained why tracing our common ancestry back to Adam is so vital in our pursuit of ethnic harmony in our world. Unless every human being is understood to be a descendant of the first human pair created in the image of God, unless you believe that, there's always room for someone to argue that some ethnic groups today might not descend from Adam, but might descend instead from another lineage and thus are not image bearers of God, or at least not image bearers like we are. Not deserving, therefore, of the same human rights that we enjoy. That, my friends, is not just theoretical. No, that is how people throughout history have tried to justify the mistreatment, enslavement, or genocide of marginalized peoples and of oppressed minority groups. That's a real way of thinking out there. And so that's why it matters that everyone in human history can trace their lineage back to this first pair. Our common ancestry undercuts all arguments for racial superiority. Because biblically, there is really only one race. There's not multiple races out there. There's one race. It's called the human race. It's called mankind, according to Paul. Now, as the text says, there are different ethnos of mankind. There's different ethnicities within the human race. But we're all humans. We're all mankind. We're all human beings made in the image of God. That's a pointed message, not just for the Athenians back then, but friends, that's a message for us today. All peoples of all ethnicities have within themselves the fleshly tendency to view their group as superior to other groups. It may not be expressed directly through an overt act of racism. It's usually far more subtle than that. It could just take the form of simply assuming that the standards and experiences of our culture must be normative for all other cultures, for all other peoples. Everyone must think that way. So if we assume that every young man or every young woman should pursue higher education and should pursue advanced degrees, and then we conclude that those who choose not to are probably just not very intelligent or they're lazy, well, that's taking a fairly consistent norm within Chinese-American culture and imposing that norm upon all other groups. So if you meet someone with only a high school education and you immediately in your mind start making some negative assumptions about them, well, that's an expression, a subtle one, of ethnic superiority. And you need to recognize that and to repent of that. Friends, this is something all of us need to watch out for. A sense of superiority is not just a danger for those who are in the ethnic majority. But of course, whenever you are in a context where you are the majority, 
like if you're worshiping in a Chinese heritage church and you are Chinese American, then it is incumbent upon those in the ethnic majority in that context to be more sensitive to those who are in the ethnic minority. To be careful that you don't make your cultural distinctives the normative expectations for everyone. And maybe, maybe just the first step is to learn to recognize that maybe some of the things that you think or some of the things you do that you just assume everyone thinks and everyone does is actually a distinctive. It's a good distinctive, but it's just a distinctive of your culture, of your ethnic heritage. And it is not something to be imposed and expected upon everyone. When you're in the majority, and you're often just living only in the majority, then it is harder to see that. So sometimes it is good to intentionally put yourself in a situation where you're not the ethnic majority, but you're in the minority, and then you are able to see some of these things more clearly. So again, when you are in the majority, you are therefore far more sensitive towards others. That's something to take away. But as Christians... As Christians, it is our responsibility to see that, to see all of these things, to, to recognize these dynamics. It's our responsibility to repent of any ethnic pride that we might carry and to strive to love our neighbors as ourselves. We need to recognize why God made us different, why he placed us all over the face of the earth in all these different locations, in these different time periods. And of course, that leads to our third and final observation. That God made us all different but he put within us the same desire for the same pursuit. When Paul stresses in verse 26 the givenness of our heritage, how God determined the allotted periods in which we'd live and all the boundaries of where we dwell, he's saying there that we all come from different periods in history and different ethnic groups, but we all share a similar origin in Adam, we just saw that, and also a similar pursuit in life. Listen to verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, in the context of his sermon, Paul's main point was really to push back against the polytheism of his audience. The Greeks, they were, they, they were known to be religiously inclusive. They had very little hesitancy to add more gods. Hey, you have a new god you want to tell us about? All right, sure, bring him on in. We'll add him to our existing pantheon of gods. We'll worship him as well or worship her. But Paul says in verse 27 that God ordained all the ethnic and cultural differences in our world, not so that all these various different groups would end up devising their own different versions of God. no so that they would all together seek after the one true God. The phrase there, feel their way toward him, that can be also translated groping for God, groping for him. It carries this connotation of groping blindly in the dark. You see, without scripture, without the light of special revelation, Gentiles can only grope about. They can only feel around for God like blind men. And Paul saw plenty of evidence of this groping about while he walked around Athens. There was plenty of groping and feeling around for God, which explains all of their idols and explains, of course, that statue dedicated to the unknown God. And that's not just an Athenian problem. This is really a universal 
problem. God has made us all different. He has placed us in all these different ethnic groups, but he put within us the same desire, a desire for him. But of course, we know that sin has corrupted that desire. Sin has misdirected our search, leading us astray instead into idolatry. And so that means that all the worldly pursuits of mankind, all of our sinful diversions, can be understood at the root as really mankind's search for God. We're all looking for God. G.K. Chesterton, he famously said that, quote, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. That means that the immediate pursuit could be to fulfill a fleshly lust or to satisfy an empty feeling to ease an anxious spirit, to assuage a guilty conscience, whatever that immediate pursuit might be in the end, what everyone is really groping after is God. But sadly, the hope that every ethnos of mankind would feel their way towards God and actually find him is not going to happen. It's been hampered by sin. Sin alienates us from God. We don't want him. And yet, at the same time, something in us, something, something in us we just can't seem to shake is that we're groping for God. We don't want him, and yet we still grope for him. That's what explains all of the rampant idolatry in the world and in our own lives. We're always worshiping something. Now look back at verse 27. Paul is suggesting that we can't blame God for our alienation. Since remember, Paul says, he's actually not far from each one of us. We're the ones who are far from him. If it weren't for our sins separating us, God would be accessible. The blame falls on us. So Paul's argument in his Mars Hill sermon is that mankind's consistent failure to find God and our resultant idolatry just goes to prove that God can only be found if he initiates things, if he comes first to us. And he has, Paul says, in the person of Jesus Christ, whom God has raised from the dead. That's how he ends this sermon. That's the punch. And friends, that is the good news of the gospel. God actually is not far from each of us because he has come to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. If you repent of your sins, if you turn away from the sovereign self, if you trust in Jesus as your only master, as your only Lord and Savior, yes, you will find God. And you will find him to be merciful and forgiving and patient and kind. Friend, you will find a loving father. Church, as we come to recognize and, and to respect the goodness of our givenness, especially our given ethnic identity, well, this last point just reminds us of another given that we must not ignore or deny. And that would be our given commission. Our given commission to make disciples of all nations, of all ethne of all ethnic people groups. That's what Jesus left us with. 
Because we believe as Christians that there is only one God who made the whole world and everything in it. And because we believe that he made from one man every ethnos of mankind. That's why we are convinced, quote, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. The Athenians, they looked to Athena. The Ephesians, they, they looked to Artemis. And other ethnos probably looked to Zeus and Poseidon and Apollos. They looked to these other gods. But Paul understood that these so-called gods Well, they turn out to be merely images formed by the art and imagination of man, verse 29. And so he faithfully carried out his given commission and he preached Christ. Well, church, the lost among every ethnos of mankind are right now blindly groping and feeling their way towards God. So I ask you, What role are you going to play in the Great Commission to make God-loving and compassionate disciples of Jesus Christ among all nations, among all ethne? Some should go. Some should send. All of us should pray because that is a given for all Christians. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the unique ways that you have made us, specifically the way you have given us an ethnic heritage and identity, and that you have given us this opportunity to take part in a great commission to make disciples of Jesus Christ among all those ethnic groups. So help us come to appreciate the way you've made us, appreciate our ethnicity, and to appreciate other ethnicities and other heritages, and to experience that unity that we find in Christ, and then to go forth from here and to bring that gospel, that gospel of of unity to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.